But brethren, what a rich privilege it has been to be in the book of Philemon. This remarkable epistle, which I think is not as highly valued and appreciated as it really ought to be. The, the great lessons that we have been able to glean from this book have been many. And last time we talked about this remarkable expression given by the Apostle Paul, where he talks about his confidence in Philemon's obedience, where he says, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. And at the same time, also prepare a lodging, me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I shall be given to you. Speaking of the idea of God's sovereignty and the fact that God would be the one giving him to Philemon. But this confidence that he had in Philemon was rooted in the fact that Paul was able to see and witness the, the faithfulness of Philemon's life. The very faith and love that was in his life was manifested by means of fruit. And therefore he was able to speak of the confidence of his obedience. We talked about the word hupakuo. It speaks of this idea of hearing the word of God, hearing the instructions of God, and placing ourselves beneath the authority of what God has revealed. Very important concept. Then we talked about the obedience of others who were listed then in the concluding verses of the epistle. He speaks of Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. And then we come to the concluding verse in verse 25, where he says, very simply, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now let me say this about that concluding verse. Oftentimes we'll say things like, may the mercy and grace of God be with you, or we'll just say things like grace to you, to other people. As mere mortals, we do that because it is our hope that God's grace would faithfully be worked out in the lives of others, both in terms of salvation and sanctification. But as such, it is an expression that just expresses a hope. We cannot confer upon others God's sovereign grace. That's God's prerogative alone. And so while we do pray and wish that others would be able to experience the grace and mercy of God, ultimately we do confess that it is God who effectually gives his grace and mercy. The Lord Jesus Christ said this in John chapter 6. He says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That is everyone who believes in him. And how do those individuals, how do lost sinners come to saving faith in Christ? Well, a few verses later, Jesus explains how that is accomplished. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, it is by God's sovereign drawing, his sovereign and effectual grace, that the sinner is drawn to Christ and is brought to Christ in faith. Wednesday night, and as Scott was mentioning, we really are having a rich time of worship. We're calling it the midweek worship time at the parsonage because we're going through the word of God, we're singing hymns of praise to God, we're taking the time to praise God and, ex and exalt his name together. And what we examined this last Wednesday is we talked about Deuteronomy 6, we talked about the foremost commandment, and we talked about this remarkable privilege that we as the people of God have wherein we can say that God is our God. He's our God, and, and that's not a boast in us. That's not a, a claim that says, oh, look at me, I, I'm, I'm the possession of God, and that's somehow to my credit or praise. No. He's our God, not by personal merit, not by genealogy, not by the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but only by the will of God, by his sovereign mercy and grace. And by the way, this is exactly what we have in the lesson of Deuteronomy 6. In the next chapter in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord told the nation that he did not set his love upon them because they were more in number than the other nations, but it's simply because of his sovereign love that he set upon their forefathers. That's it. 
There's nothing that we can point to within ourselves that commends ourselves to God. God in his sovereign will and sovereign love sets his grace upon the sinner to redeem them. By the way, when we talk about the doctrines of grace, this is why we refer to grace as being irresistible. We talk about irresistible grace. What does that mean? Well, that means that when God draws the sinner to Christ, that cannot be resisted. That's why we call grace effectual. When God sets his saving grace on the sinner, there's no turning back. The creature cannot refuse this. And when we talk about perseverance, we're talking about an effectual work of grace. Those whom God saves, he perseveres to the end. Brethren, if that were not true, we would live out our every day in fear that somehow we would step out of the hand of God by our own effort. I remember being told that when I was a brand new Christian and I thought to myself, this doesn't seem to square with scripture, that God is powerful enough and free enough to save me, but somehow I'm free enough and powerful enough to escape his will and his redeeming grace. Hardly. What a powerful statement it is at the conclusion of Philemon to say the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is a good expression of hope and a good desire to express to others because it reminds us of the fact that in everything, everything is of grace. The life and being that we have is the, is, is the result of God being gracious to us. The unmerited gift of salvation, again, is a result of God's effectual grace. By his effectual grace, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. By his effectual grace, we are justified as we stand before the Father, being covered by the righteous merit of Jesus Christ. And by that same effectual grace, we are being sanctified as the children of God, being conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. By the way, the Second London Baptist Confession affirms these very truths in a very important way. And I wanted to read this to you. Just listen to these words. What a beautiful summation this is of the very things that we have just stipulated. Those whom God hath accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, and given the precious faith of his elect unto can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. Whence he still begets and nourisheth in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, Yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon. Notwithstanding through unbelief and temptations of Satan, the sensible side of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them. Yet he is still the same and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation where they shall enjoy their purchased possession they being engraved upon the palm of his hands and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. God, by his sovereign power, saves, sanctifies, perseveres, and brings his people home every time. And God never fails at this task. What a beautiful truth this is. And Paul, by concluding, this epistle, by wishing and giving this expression of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ being with your spirit, we have been seeing how it is that the grace of God has been with Philemon and Onesimus and Luke and Aristarchus and Mark and Epaphras. All these men were giving evidence of the grace of God in their lives by virtue of their faithfulness and obedience to Christ. But this is why I mentioned last time that there is one individual who is mentioned who deviated from this pathway of grace, Demas. Instead of being a lover of God and a lover of Christ and of, things of, God, and of the things of God, Paul indicted Demas in his second epistle to Timothy 
wherein he said that Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. There are many things that we don't know about Demas and what he ended up doing, but I would submit to you that this mention of Demas provides us with a great number of lessons. And this morning, I want to review what those lessons are. First of all, I want us to consider what we should learn from Paul's mention of Demas. This is a warning sign. The mention of Demas is a warning sign. Paul called him a a fellow worker, and yet we found out in time, we find out in time that he demonstrated that he was something other than a fellow worker of the gospel. So we should learn from this, we should learn what lessons we have in this mention of Demas, first of all. Secondly, I want us to consider why this is an important lesson to stop and consider. The church needs to consider what the warning messages are and the warning signs are in scripture. And this is a warning sign that we have being given to us. And so we need to consider why this is an important lesson to consider. And finally, we're going to consider together why it is that this is even an important preparation for the Lord's table, which we will partake of next Lord's Day. But the first lesson I want us to consider here, brethren, is what it is that we should learn from Paul's mention of Demas. Matthew chapter 13 gives us one of the principal lessons that is availed to us in Scripture regarding the presence of the Demases of the world. Remember that in this parable of the landowner who sowed good seed in the field, we know that in the evening he and his servants, as they slept, an enemy sowed tares alongside the wheat. And the wheat and the tares were not really to be known or could not be known until they grew up side by side and became distinguishable as being either wheat or tares. And in the final judgment, the tares are to be bound up in bundles and burned up, but the the wheat is to be gathered up in the master's barn, a clear indication of the fact that God will sort out the details in the end of who is the wheat and who is the tare within the professing church. This is an important lesson in scripture. In fact, we sing hymns that remind us of these lessons. Hymn number 385, let me just ask you to, we're not going to sing it right now, but hymn number 385, there are two verses that are sometimes omitted from the the hymn, the church's one foundation, but I would say to you they should never be omitted because they're very important verses. Verse 3 says this of the church's one foundation, though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, that is the sore of the church, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long, and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Then verse 4, the church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against the foe or traitor she ever shall prevail. Our Lord Jesus Christ promised that in the visible church there would be the wheat of the true people of God and there would also be tares. The lesson of Demas is a reminder of that parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13. What's remarkable about this and the particular example of Demas is that Paul called Demas in Philemon a co-worker, a fellow worker. He was not at the time aware of the fact that Demas would yield forth fruit that would be bad, that would show forth the fact that he had different affections from the affections of a child of God. And what's remarkable about this is, is that Paul as an apostle was oftentimes given direct revelation about a great number of things about his own life and ministry. But he was never given a rap sheet of all the defectors who would show up in his life. In Acts chapter 18, the Lord, by way of a vision, reminded Paul that he needed to persevere in the ministry of the gospel. Why? Because the Lord said that I have many people in this city. 
He didn't know who they were, or he wasn't given a list of names, but he just knew by virtue of the revelation of God that there were many of the people of God who would respond to the gospel, and so he needed to preach it. In Acts chapter 20, the Holy Spirit solemnly testified to Paul that bonds and afflictions awaited him, and yet he did not know fully the timing and the, the, the manner of the circumstances of how he would be bound and ultimately killed by the Roman soldiers, eventually by the order of Nero. Those were details that the Lord did not give him. And even in Acts chapter 20, before he departed from Ephesus to Jerusalem, he spoke to the elders at Ephesus, and he said this. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. He gives no names, but he just knows that this is going to happen. I would submit to you that this should remind us of the fact that, again, that as an apostle, Paul knew many things that would await his own life in ministry. He knew things about, about his future life in ministry from the revelation of the Lord, but there were things that he did not know. And one of those things is that he did not know who the defectors were going to be in his midst. This is just like the experience of the disciples. They did not know that Judas was the son of perdition until it was finally exposed and revealed through his bad fruit and defection. All of this, brethren, reminds us of the importance of the lesson that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to us. He gave it to his disciples. He gives it to us that we need to be a people who discern the difference between good and bad fruit. Every good tree, the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 17, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then he gives the inferential particle in verse 20, which is essentially summarizing what he is saying. And the summation of what he is saying is this. He says, so then you will know them by their fruits. He doesn't say you're going to know them by their thoughts, their motives, or their words. You'll know them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. As we said last Lord's Day, it takes time for a tree to grow and produce fruit. When you meet somebody off the street and they tell you you're a Christian, you take them at their word. You have no reason to doubt them as soon as you meet them. But as you get to know them over time, you begin to examine and consider their life. And as you examine their, the fruit of their life, you begin to see whether the fruit is good or bad. And this is, according to Jesus, how we get to know people. Remarkably, Demas went from being a sunergoi, a co-worker of Paul, to one who was a lover of this present age. Demas, having loved this present world or present age, Paul says, has deserted me. And as we talked about last time, that follows on the heels of verse 8, where he describes the heart of the child of God who longs for and loves the appearing of Christ. He uses the same or similar participial form of the word agape when he says that the child of God loves and longs for the appearing of Christ. And that's the divide. The child of God is looking to Christ and longing for his return. Demas loved this present age and abandoned Paul in the ministry of the gospel. This is an important thing to consider because Paul basically describes for us the bad fruit and the corrupt, corrupt, corrupt affections of Demas. The bad fruit is, is that he abandoned Paul in the ministry of the gospel. As for the corruption of his affections, as we said, Demas loved this present world. Now, sometimes I get into issues of grammar and, and so forth, and I don't want to 
be overbearing with that, but you have to remember that every jot and tittle and every detail of Scripture is there for a purpose. And so the fact that Paul uses what's called an aorist active participle is actually very important. Because, number one, the fact that it's an aorist participle, remember we're talking about participles. Participles are words that we use to describe people in view of their actions. Um, we say that someone is a runner because they run, right? We, we we're saying, we're describing the person's activity. We're saying that person likes to run a lot. So we see them running a lot, so we call them a runner. Here, Demas is called one who is loving the world. It's not just that he loved the present age in some sort of a moment in time and then stopped. The participle speaks to the notion of ongoing action. When a football receiver catches a football on the 50-yard line, what does he do? Does he stand there and celebrate and wave at the fans and everything and, and not go anywhere? Well, let's hope not. He gets the football and he starts running towards the end zone, right, to get the touchdown. And he keeps running until somebody's going to stop him. But that's that idea of ongoing action. There was the event of catching the ball. That's the heiress. But the participle means we're running now. I got the football. I'm going to the end zone. And in the case of the participle, there's no stopping. It just keeps going and going and going. One commentator paraphrases what Paul is saying here, translating it this way. Demas has begun to love and still loves the present age. He just keeps doing it and doing it and doing it. The other detail of this participle that you need to notice with me is this, is that it is not a passive participle, but an active participle, meaning he's the source of this. No one's making him do this. Demas is not some sort of a victim. He loves his present age because that's what's welling up in his own heart. Brethren, I, I know I've said it before, but I'm probably going to be repeating it um, over time. But one of the greatest plagues within the modern, modern society and the modern church is this victimization motif. You've noticed, you see it in society, people claim to be a victim and suddenly that gives them power. It's like, well, you're hurting me, you're offending me, you're bothering me, and suddenly they have a right and license to start burning down buildings and, and doing all sorts of mayhem. And I believe that even in the psychoanalytic world in which we have been living for years now, people express themselves as victims because they're victims of countless mental diseases rather than being people who are responsible for their own thoughts, words, and actions. All of this is dangerous, but mark this. This goes all the way back to the fall. What in the world did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? The woman sinned and blamed the serpent. Adam sinned and blamed the woman and the God who made her. Everybody's a victim. Nobody's responsible. So this isn't some sort of a new thing. This goes all the way back to the fall of man. And I say to you, it is dangerous. There's a reason why James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Why does he say that, by the way? Because this is the proclivity of the human heart. Oh, look at me, I'm a victim. I can't help myself. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by what? His own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. It all starts right here in the human heart. The heresy of such faux victimization it goes all the way back to the fall of man. We have to understand that when Paul says that Demas was one who was loving this present age, this was his own affections welling up in his own heart, giving expression to the bad fruit of his abandonment of Paul. And what did he love? He loved this present world, this noon Iona. In Paul's lexicon, this present world or age 
The word Iona speaks of the idea of, of a, the temporal reality of the world in which we live and all the ideologies and philosophies that exist within the world. In Paul's lexicon, this present age is corrupt. It is, it is filled and fraught with the sin and corruption of mankind and the devil. In Galatians 1.4, he uses this, this expression when he says, Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. In 1 Corinthians 2.6, he speaks of the temporal and passing nature of this present age, saying that God's wisdom is not of this age, which is, he says, passing away. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul speaks of this present age as being blind to the wisdom and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 12.2, Paul speaks of the need to have our minds purged of the influences of this present age. He says, do not be conformed to this age, this present age, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Everything that exists in this present age is that which is being raised up against God in enmity against him. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul describes. We have to understand that this world is not a friend to God. It has set itself up as God's enemy. The Apostle Paul was being criticized and slandered by some within the Corinthian church. And many of these individuals were flirting with this present age and the ideologies of this present age. And so Paul says this. He says, now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. He's quoting their slander against him. I ask that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. They were saying and accusing him of walking in the flesh. Not a small accusation. But then he says this, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For, our, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And what are those fortresses? We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He uses the language of warfare, and literally when he talks about destroying these speculations and everything that is raised up against the knowledge of God, he uses a term that basically means take a wrecking ball to it. Destroy the building. All these buildings that are erected up against the knowledge and wisdom of God, we are here to destroy it. Because this present age is in a state of enmity against God. And it's not where we go to get truth. Demas, rather than embracing the riches and wisdom of Christ, he chose to cling to this world, doing so in perpetuity. And all of this is a, a violation of the clear warning signs of scripture. James rebukes his readers when he says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? The world's not your friend. Don't pretend that it is, in other words. And John warns us in a similar fashion. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Stop clinging to these things. This world is passing away. These are important warning signs. And this brings us next to our next observation. Why are these warning signs important? Why are they in scripture? What are we to do with them? Ignore them? Can you imagine if overnight 
all the stop signs in the United States are taken down. All the light signals, the intersection signals are taken down. All the uh, railroad crossing barriers and lights and everything are taken down. Everything is removed on every street and highway in, in the United States. What chaos would ensue? By the way, things are bad enough with the signs in, in place, right? But if he took them all away, suddenly you would have absolute chaos and mayhem, bankrupting every insurance company on planet Earth in, or here on, in the United States. Brethren, the warning signs in Scripture are there not to ignore, but to pay very close and careful attention to. And we are fools to ignore them. Demas is mentioned as a fellow worker, and yet we find out that he was something other than that. And it took time to reveal the affections of his heart through his actions. Let me say this. The appointment of Judas as one of the 12 was not some mistake. God doesn't do anything by mistake. Everything is foreordained by his good and perfect plan and will. And this is why I believe that the example of Judas should remind us of the importance of Jesus' teaching when he says, you will know them by their fruits. You know, the naivete of the disciples is remarkable with respect to Judas. At the Last Supper, the Lord Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, and being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, I'll bet it's Judas. Is that what it says? No. Surely not I, Lord. Surely not I. They were incredulous regarding this announcement. Not a single one of them suspected that their defector was there in their midst, and his name was Judas. But this isn't the only example in Scripture. There are many Remember when the deacons, when deacons were appointed in Acts chapter 6, and these men were considered to be men of good reputation. You had Stephen, you had Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, who was a proselyte from Antioch. Again, these were men who were considered to be of good reputation, and yet we learn that Nicholas by the tradition of the early church fathers, by Clement of Alexandria, Irenaeus, and others, Nicholas, we find, is rebuked for the heresy that he established that, that is called the deeds of the Nicolaitans, the followers of Nicholas. Jesus himself commended the Ephesians when he said that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It's likely that they were basically an antinomian lawless sect that promoted the lawless deeds of many who followed them. What is this but a, a warning sign? In a moment, you can say that this man is a faithful man. You can say that this man is a man of good reputation. You can say that this man is a co-laborer, but like Nicholas and Demas, you find out in time that maybe they were something other than what you assumed they were. Jude has a similar experience for us and a reminder to us regarding the importance of the warning signs in Scripture. Jude was writing to his readers, saying, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, he said, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And then he gives a reason why he's now changed from writing about our common salvation to warning them and exhorting them to contend or fight earnestly for the faith. Here's why. Verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, he says. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of our Lord 
of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. When he says that they crept in unnoticed, this tells us a few things. Number one, it tells us that these imposters to the church, they were stealthy about it. They didn't come in and say, hey guys, we're false teachers. We're, we're wolves, you know, and we're here to devour the sheep. sheep en- uh, wolves enter into the church with the clothing of a sheep, covering and masking their true nature and character. But this also speaks to the naivete and immaturity of the church that they would not be able to see and detect these individuals because when you read the book of Jude, all of Jude is basically a rap sheet on the sins and the bad fruit of these individuals and he's basically letting them know, you know what, you should have seen this coming. Because when you really examine who they are, examine their lives, you've got to understand something. It's not good fruit, it's bad fruit. And so in verse 11, he shows forth the bad fruit of these individuals, likening them to Cain, Balaam, and Korah. He he issues a prophetic judgment against them, saying, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And what do we know about Cain? Well, Cain killed his brother Abel, but why? You know, one of the things you have to remember about Cain is, is that if you met him, you might meet him and talk to him and discover that he was preparing a sacrifice to give to God. And you would say to yourself, oh, look, at he's, he's devoted to God. He loves the Lord. He's, he's preparing a sacrifice to God. Both he and Abel offered up sacrifices to God. But in Genesis 4, we see, we read that Cain, and for his offering, he, God, had no regard. God did not regard Cain nor his offering. And do you know what it says in the scriptures about Cain's response when he learned that God did not regard his offering? It says that Cain became very angry. Child of God, if you do something that you know dishonors and displeases God, Is being angry at God a right response? No, for the child of God, this brings a a spirit of repentance and sorrow that we would ever grieve or displease our Lord. His response reveals the reality of his heart. And this is why John says in 1 John 3, Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, and for that reason, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. There's almost a hint of a suggestion that there was a jealousy over his brother, Abel. Balaam, he was a false prophet for hire, basically. He practiced divination and sorcery and called upon any and all forces that he could conjure up to energize his proclamations. He was hired by Balak to curse Israel. The Lord sovereignly intervened and used his mouth to bless his people. And though this may have given him in the moment an appearance of being favorable as being one who is a servant of the Lord, and yet we find out later on that Balaam lured the nation of Israel into horrific idolatry, and he was killed. He wasn't serving the glory of God, but like Judas, he was laboring for the 30 pieces of silver that he could secure. What about Korah? Here is another religious man like Balaam, like Cain. Korah was also counted to be a a godly man in the nation of Israel. But what did he do? He raised up a coup of 250 men in rebellion against Moses and Aaron, and they complained regarding God's chosen leadership, saying, Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of the land of flowing with milk and honey and, and have us to die in the wilderness? And you would lord it over us. In divine judgment, the Lord opened up the earth, destroyed Korah and his family and all those who were aligned with him. And it wasn't just them. After this took place, 
Rather than seeing the obvious nature of the judgment of God, many of the people groaned, complained, and slandered Moses and Aaron, saying that they were the cause of what happened. And so it says in verse 41, but on the next day all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. And as a result of this, another 14,700 were destroyed. Cain, Balaam, Korah. These are all God-ordained warning signs that are given to us in Scripture. And brethren, we are fools if we walk past those warning signs and ignore them. We can't do it. So then, Jesus says, inferential particles. So then, here's the summation of my teaching about the good tree and the bad tree. So then you will know them by their fruits. One of the reasons why I think Pilgrim's Progress is such a rich book is because it helps us to think about things like this. It helps us to think about the importance of being vigilant as believers as we walk through this life. There's one point in time where Christian and hopeful are walking through the narrow pathway on their way to the celestial city, and they meet individuals like Mr. Byens, great name. This is a man who will do anything in order to achieve his own ends. Or Mr. Hold the World, who was a companion of Mr. Byens, Or Mr. Money Love, they met. And then they met Mr. Save All. Great names. You know, if, if, you, if we went through life and people were really named for who they really are, life would be a lot easier. Hi, I'm Mr. Money Love. Oh, okay, I get it. You know, but that's not how life works. It says that they were all classmates taught by Mr. Greitman, a schoolmaster in Lovegain, the city of Lovegain, in the country of coveting. Do you get it? It says this schoolmaster taught them the art of getting, either by violence, deception, flattering, lying, or putting on a guise of religion. And these four gentlemen had attained much of the art of their master so that they could each of them have kept such a school themselves. And in the narrative of Pilgrim's Progress, all of these men tried to lure Christian into this idea of using religion for their own selfish purposes. And then, right after he, he and Hopeful met these individuals, who did they find along the pathway or just outside of the pathway? A man by the name of Demas. It says he was a little off the road. Notice the detail of Bunyan here. Is he in the narrow way? No. He's just a little outside of it. And that's all it takes. He was, a, he was one who had the appearance of being in the narrow pathway, but he was a little outside of the road. And he was over against a silver mine. And he was calling passengers to come, passers-by to come and to see the riches of his silver mine. They have a brief dialogue and then Christian rebuked Demas for his love of this present age and called him a son of Judas. And in the end of this portion of the narrative it says... We learned that Mr. Byans, Mr. Hold the World, Mr. Money Love, and Mr. Save All came again within sight, and they immediately went over to Demas. Now, whether they fell into the pit by looking over the brink thereof, or whether they went down to dig, or whether they were smothered in the bottom of the damps that commonly arise, of these things I am not certain, says Bunyan, but this I observe, that they were never seen again in the narrow way. Brethren, it is a, an important warning sign for all of us as individuals to look at the example of Edemus and to say, Oh God, keep my heart affection set upon you rather than the things of this world. Help me to understand that friendship with the world is enmity with you. By the way, we refer to this book 
Pilgrim's Progress just by the name of Pilgrim's Progress. But do you know what the full title is? Do you remember? Many of you have probably seen it. Here's the full title. The Pilgrim's Progress from this world to that which is to come, delivered under the similitude of a dream wherein is discovered the manner of his setting out his dangerous journey and safe arrival at the desired country. Oh, this harkens back to the days when the Puritans knew how to write a title and subtitle to a book, brethren. We call it Pilgrim's Progress, but that's the full title. And I love the full title because it reminds us of the sovereignty of grace wherein he sovereignly redeems, sanctifies, perseveres, and brings his people home every time. This is what effectual grace does. And while if we met Demas, we could wish the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ upon him or say the words, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. We do not have the power to confer such grace upon others. That is the sovereign work of God. In the case of Demas, we have no evidence that he continued in the pathway of Christ but departed from it nay, never was in it. And this is why I suggest to you, brethren, that this warning sign of Demas is important and is even an important preparation for the the next Lord's Day, wherein we'll be partaking of the Lord's table. Just a few thoughts and principles as we conclude our time together. Number one, individually, the lesson of Demas should warn our hearts and remind us of the need to examine our hearts each and every day. Whatever we do, whatever service we render, we need to ask the question, why am I doing this? Am I doing it for Christ? Am I doing it for some other reason? If we're doing it for some other reason other than for Christ, then that's a problem. But it's a good thing to consider. Remember the example of the Pharisees. They love to, be, to do their works in public to be what? Seen by men. Everything was about visibility and being seen so that they themselves could, could be praised as being religious men. But we're called to examine the heart and serve the Lord from the heart. John Flavel, in his excellent book on keeping the heart, says this, Outward sins are sins of great infamy, but the sins of the heart are sins of deep guilt. Why did God destroy all of humanity except for Noah and his family? Because every intent of the thoughts of the hearts of men were only evil continually. Did you catch that? The thoughts of the heart. The emphasis is not on the actions. God who sees the heart, knows the thoughts and the intentions of the human heart, sees our sins at its inception point, at the point of creation, which is in the human heart, according to James. It's the lust of the heart. God sees it, and he judged the entire world for it. Brethren, it is important that we consider our hearts in our service to God. And may we never forget the importance of that lesson. In our times of prayer, our times of study of the word, we need to ask the Lord to reveal the sins of our own hearts because we can't even fully comprehend our own thoughts and intentions as only God can. Secondly, And I offer this as a concluding point here, and I'll say more about this next Lord's Day. But the fact that there are, as the hymn writer says, false sons in her pale, in keeping with the parable of the wheat and the tares, we know that in the church there's always going to be the reality of the wheat and the tares. And there are going to be people in the midst of the church who do not know Christ. And we need to be mindful of that. We need to be eager to share the gospel with those who do not know Christ. 
And we also need to know and remember the lessons of Jude and Demas and Nicholas and all these other examples, Judas himself, that there are going to be some who are not friends of the church, friends of the body of Christ. But their actions will reveal a very contrary spirit. And this is why I would say to you, no one should ever want controversy in the church. No one should ever want controversy just for controversy's sake. That is actually a a depraved appetite. But when you have conflict in the church, when you have sin in the church, the solution is not to get a bunch of white paint and cover it up. When we read the, Paul's epistle to the Corinthian church, chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, he exposes the reality of the sins that were taking place in that church. Why? Because he loved controversy? No, because he loved God and he had a genuine love for the people. And he wasn't the one who was going to get a bunch of white paint out and just say, you know, let's just find a way to cover this stuff up. When he gets to the discussion of the Lord's table, he says this, and this is a remarkable statement. He says, there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may become evident among you. It's necessary, he says, that there are factions. Because of the sins that were taking place in the church, that does divide the wheat from the tares. And that's why he says, this is necessary. Again, no one should ever want division or conflict. But mark this. We should never want a false peace that says, let's just get the white paint and cover it up. Or let's just pretend there isn't a problem. That's never a solution. This is why the body of Christ is called time after time after time to self-examination, both individually and corporately as the body of Christ. This is necessary for the purity of Christ's body so that we would honor Christ as he deserves. 